This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Mysteries of Adolphe by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 3, Chapter 7. Was naught around but images of rest, sleep soothing groves and quiet lawns between, and flowery beds that slumberous influence kept, from poppies breathed and banks of pleasant green, where never yet was creeping creature seen. Meantime, unnumbered glittering streamlets played, and held everywhere their waters sheen, that as they bickered through the sunny glade. Though restless still themselves, though restless still themselves, a lulling murmur made. Thompson. When Emily in the morning opened her casement, she was surprised to observe the beauties that surrounded it. The cottage was nearly embowered in the woods, which were chiefly of chestnut intermixed with some cypress, larch, and sycamore. Beneath the dark and spreading branches appeared to the north and to the east the woody Apennines, rising a majestic amphitheatre, not black with pines, as she had been accustomed to see them, but their loftiest summits crowned with antient forests of chestnut, oak, and oriental plain, now animated with the rich tints of autumn, and which swept downward to the valley uninterruptedly, except where some bold rocky promontory looked out from among the foliage, and caught the passing gleam. Vineyards stretched along the feet of the mountains, where the elegant villas of the Tuscan nobility frequently adorned the scene, and overlooked slopes clothed with groves of oil, mulberry, orange, and lemon. The plain, to which these declined, was coloured with the riches of cultivation, whose mingled hues were mellowed into harmony by an Italian sun. Vines, their purple clusters blushing between the russet foliage, hung in luxuriant festoons from the branches of standard fig and cherry-trees, while pastures of verdure, such as Emily had seldom seen in Italy, enriched the banks of a stream that, after descending from the mountains, wound along the landscape, which it reflected, to a bay of the sea. There, far in the west, the waters, fading into the sky, assumed a tint of the faintest purple, and the line of separation between them was, now and then, discernible only by the progress of a sail, brightened with the sunbeam along the horizon. The cottage, which was shaded by the woods from the intense rays of the sun, and was open only to his evening light, was covered entirely with vines, fig-trees, and jasmine, whose flowers surpassed in size and fragrance any that Emily had seen. These, and ripening clusters of grape, hung round a little casement, the turf that grew under the woods was inlaid with a variety of wild flowers and perfumed herbs, and, on the opposite margin of the stream, whose current diffused freshness between the shades, rose a grove of lemon and orange trees. This, though nearly opposite to Emily's window, did not interrupt her prospect, but rather heightened, by its dark verdure, the effect of the perspective and to her this spot was a bower of sweets, whose charms communicated imperceptibly to her mind somewhat of their own serenity. She was soon summoned to breakfast, 
by a peasant's daughter, a girl about seventeen, of a pleasant countenance, which, Emily was glad to observe, seemed animated with the pure affections of nature, though the others that surrounded her expressed more or less the worst qualities, cruelty, ferocity, cunning, and duplicity. Of the latter style of countenance especially were those of the peasant and his wife. Madalena spoke little, but what she said was in a soft voice, and with an air of modesty and complacency that interested Emily, who breakfasted at a separate table with Dorina, while Ergo and Bertrand were taking a repast of Tuscany bacon and wine with their host near the cottage door. When they'd finished which, Ergo rising hastily, inquired for his mule, and Emily learned that he was to return to Adolfo, while Bertrand remained at the cottage, a circumstance which, though it did not surprise, distressed her. When Ergo was departed, Emily proposed to walk in the neighbouring woods, but, on being told that she must not quit the cottage, without having Bertrand for her attendant, she withdrew to her own room. There, as her eyes settled on the towering Apennines, she recollected the terrific scenery they had exhibited, and the horrors she had suffered on the preceding night, particularly at the moment when Bertrand had betrayed himself to be an assassin, and these remembrances awakened a train of images which, since he abstracted her from consideration of her own situation, she pursued for some time, and then arranged in the following lines, pleased to have discovered any innocent means by which she could beguile an hour of misfortune. THE PILGRIM Slow o'er the Apennine with bleeding feet, a patient pilgrim wound his lonely way, to deck the lady of Loretto's seat with all the little wealth his zeal could pay. From mountain-tops cold died the evening ray, and stretched in twilight slept the vale below, and now the last, last purple streaks of day along the melancholy west fade slow. High o'er his head the restless pines complain, as on their summit rolls the breeze of night. Beneath the horse-stream chides the rocks in vain, the pilgrim pauses on the dizzy height. Then to the vale his cautious step he pressed, for there a hermit's cross was dimly seen, cresting the rock, and there his limbs might rest. Cheered in the good man's cave by faggot sheen, on leafy beds, nor gall his sleep molest. Unhappy Luke, he trusts a treacherous clue. Behind the cliff the lurking robber stood. No friendly moon his giant shadow threw athwart the road to save the pilgrim's blood. On as he went a vesper hymn he sang, the hymn that nightly soothed him to repose. Fierce on his harmless prey the ruffian sprang. The pilgrim bleeds to death, his eyelids close. Yet his meek spirit knew no vengeful care. But, dying for his murdered breath, a sainted prayer. Preferring the solitude of her room to the company of the persons below stairs, Emily dined above, and Madalena was suffered to attend her, from whose simple conversations she learned that the peasant and his wife were old inhabitants of this cottage, which had been purchased for them by Matoni, in reward of some service rendered him many years before by Marco, to whom Carlo, the steward at the castle, was nearly related. "'So many years ago, Signora,' added Medellina, 
that I know nothing about it, but my father did the seigneur a great good, for my mother has often said to him, this cottage was the least he ought to have had. To the mention of this circumstance, Emily listened with a painful interest, since it appeared to give a frightful colour to the character of Marco, whose service, thus rewarded by Montoni, she could scarcely doubt have been criminal, and, if so, had too much reason to believe that she had been committed into his hands for some desperate purpose. "'Did you ever hear how many years it is?' said Emily, who was considering of Signora Laurentina's disappearance from Udolpho. "'Since your father performed the services you spoke of?' "'It was a little before he came to live at the cottage, Signora,' replied Medellina. "'And that is about eighteen years ago.' This was near the period when Signora Laurentini had been said to disappear, and it occurred to Emily that Marco had assisted in that mysterious affair, and perhaps had been employed in a murder. This horrible suggestion fixed her in such profound reverie that Madalina quitted the room, unperceived by her, and she remained unconscious of all around her for a considerable time. Tears at length came to her relief after indulging which her spirits became calmer. She ceased to tremble at a view of evils that might never arrive, and had sufficient resolution to endeavour to withdraw her thoughts from the contemplation of her own interests. Remembering the few books, which even in the hurry of her departure from Udolpho she had put into her little package, she sat down with one of them at her pleasant casement, whence her eyes often wandered from the page to the landscape, whose beauty gradually soothed her mind into gentle melancholy. Here she remained alone till evening, and saw the sun descend the western sky, throw all his pomp of light and shadow upon the mountains, and gleam upon the distant ocean and the stealing sails, as he sunk amidst the waves. Then, at the musing hour of twilight, her softened thoughts returned to Valancourt, she again recollected every circumstance connected with the midnight music, and all that might assist her conjecture concerning his imprisonment at the castle, and, becoming confirmed in the supposition that it was his voice she had heard there, she looked back to the gloomy abode with emotions of grief and momentary regret. Refreshed by the cool and fragrant air, and her spirit soothed to a state of gentle melancholy by the stilly murmur of the brook below and of the woods around. She lingered at her casement long after the sun had set, watching the valley sinking into obscurity, till only the grand outline of the surrounding mountains, shadowed upon the horizon, remained visible. But a clear moonlight that succeeded gave to the landscape what time gives to the scenes of past life, when it softens all their harsher features, and throws over the whole the mellowing shade of distant contemplation. The scenes of La Vallée, in the early morn of her life, when she was protected and beloved by parents equally loved, appeared in Emily's memory tenderly beautiful, like the prospect before her, and awakened mournful comparisons. Unwilling to encounter the coarse behaviour of the peasant's wife, she remained supperless in her room, while she wept again over her forlorn and perilous situation, a review of which entirely overcame the small remains of her fortitude, and, reducing her to temporary despondence, she wished to be released from the heavy load of life 
that had so long oppressed her, and prayed to heaven to take her, in its mercy, to her parents. Wearied with weeping, she at length lay down on her mattress, and sunk to sleep, but was soon awakened by a knocking at her chamber door, and, starting up in terror, she heard a voice calling her. The image of Bertrand, with a stiletto in his hand, appeared to alarm her fancy, and she neither opened the door or answered, but listened in profound silence, till, the voice repeating her name in the same low tone, she demanded who called it. "'It is I, Signora,' replied the voice, which she now distinguished to be Madalina's. "'Pray open the door. Don't be frightened. It is I.' "'And what brings you here so late, Madalina?' said Emily, as she let her in. "'Hush, Signora, for heaven's sake, hush! "'If we are overheard, I shall never be forgiven. "'My father and mother and Bertrand are all gone to bed.' "'Continued Madalina, as she gently shut the door and crept forward. "'And I have brought you some supper, "'for you had none, you know, Signora, below stairs. "'Here are some grapes and figs and half a cup of wine.' Emily thanked her, but expressed apprehension lest this kindness should draw upon her the resentment of Dorina, when she perceived the fruit was gone. "'Take it back, therefore, Madalina,' added Emily. "'I shall suffer much less from the want of it than I should do if this act of good nature was to subject you to your mother's displeasure.' "'Oh, Signora, there is no danger of that,' replied Madalina. "'My mother cannot miss the fruit, for I saved it from my own supper. "'You will make me very unhappy if you refuse to take it, Signora.' "'Emily was so much affected by this instance of the good girl's generosity "'that she remained for some time unable to reply. "'And Madalina watched her in silence, "'till, mistaking the cause of her emotion, she said, "'Do not weep so, Signora. "'My mother, to be sure, is a little cross sometimes.' "'but then it is soon over, so don't take it so much to heart. "'She often scolds me, too, but then I have learned to bear it. "'And when she has done, if I can but steal out into the woods "'and play upon my staccato, I forget it all directly.' "'Emily, smiling through her tears, told Madalina that she was a good girl, "'and then accepted her offer. "'She wished anxiously to know whether Bertrand and Dorina had spoken of Montoni.' "'or of his designs concerning herself, in the presence of Madalina, "'but disdained to tempt the innocent girl to a conduct so mean "'as that of betraying the private conversations of her parents. "'When she was departing, Emily requested that she would come to her room "'as often as she dared, without offending her mother. "'And Madalina, after promising that she would do so, "'stole softly back again to her own chamber. "'Thus several days passed.' during which Emily remained in her own room, Madalina attending her only at her repast, whose gentle countenance and manners soothed her more than any circumstance she had known for many months. Of her pleasant, embowered chamber she now became fond, and began to experience in it those feelings of security which we naturally attached to home. In this interval also her mind— having been undisturbed by any new circumstance of disgust or alarm, recovered its tone sufficiently to permit her the enjoyment of her books, among which she found some unfinished sketches of landscapes, several blank sheets of paper, 
several blank sheets of paper, with her drawing instruments, and she was thus enabled to amuse herself with selecting some of the lovely features of the prospect that her window commanded, and combining them in scenes, to which her tasteful fancy gave a last grace. In these little sketches she generally placed interesting groups. In these little sketches she generally placed interesting groups, characteristic of the scenery they animated, and often contrived to tell, with perspicuity, some simple and affecting story, when, as a tear fell over the pictured griefs which her imagination drew, she would forget for a moment her real sufferings. Thus innocently she beguiled the heavy hours of misfortune, and, with meek patience, awaited the events of futurity. A beautiful evening that had succeeded to a sultry day at length induced Emily to walk, though she knew that Bertrand must attend her. And, with Madalena for a companion, she left the cottage, followed by Bertrand, who allowed her to choose her own way. The hour was cool and silent, and she could not look upon the country around her without delight. How lovely, too, appeared the brilliant blue that coloured all the upper region of the air, and thence fading downward was lost in the saffron glow of the horizon. Nor lesser were the varied shades and warm colouring of the Apennines, as the evening sun threw his slanting rays athwart their broken surface. Emily followed the course of the stream under the shades that overhung its grassy margin. On the opposite banks the pastures were animated with herds of cattle of a beautiful cream colour, and beyond were groves of lemon and orange, with fruit glowing on the branches, frequent almost as the leaves which partially concealed it. She pursued her way towards the sea, which reflected the warm glow of sunset, while the cliffs that rose over its edge were tinted with the last rays. The valley was terminated on the right by a lofty promontory, whose summit, impending over the waves, was crowned with a ruined tower, now serving for the purpose of a beacon, whose shattered battlements and the extended wings of some sea-fowl that circled near it were still illumined by the upward beams of the sun, though his disk was now sunk beneath the horizon, while the lower part of the ruin, the cliff on which it stood and the wave at its foot, were shaded with the first tints of twilight. Having reached this headland, Emily gazed with solemn pleasure on the cliffs, that extended on either hand along the sequestered shores, some crowned with groves of pine, and others exhibiting only barren precipices of greyish marble, except where the crags were tufted with myrtle and other aromatic shrubs. The sea slept in perfect calm. Its waves, dying in murmurs on the shores, flowed with the gentlest undulation, while its clear surface reflected in softened beauty the vermeil tints of the west. Emily, as she looked upon the ocean, thought of France and of past times, and she wished, oh, how ardently and vainly wished, that its ways would bear her to a distant native home. Ah, that vessel, said she, that vessel which glides along so stately, with its tall sails reflected in the water, is, perhaps, bound for France. Happy, happy bark! She continued to gaze upon it with warm emotion, till the grey of twilight obscured the distance, and veiled it from her view. 
the melancholy sound of the waves at her feet assisted the tenderness that occasioned her tears, and this was the only sound that broke upon the hour, till, having followed the windings of the beach for some time, a chorus of voices passed her on the air. She paused for a moment, wishing to hear more, yet fearing to be seen, and, for the first time, looked back to Bertrand as her protector, who was following at a short distance, in company with some other person. Reassured by the circumstance, she advanced toward the sounds, which seemed to arise from behind a high promontory that projected athwart the beach. There was now a sudden pause in the music, and one female voice was heard to sing in a kind of chant. Emily quickened her steps, and, winding round the rock, saw, within the sweeping bay beyond, which was hung with woods from the borders of the beach to the very summit of the cliffs, two groups of peasants, one seated beneath the shades, and the other standing on the edge of the sea, round the girl who was singing, and who held in her hand a chaplet of flowers, which she seemed about to drop into the waves. Emily, listening with surprise and attention, distinguished the following invocation delivered in the pure and elegant tongue of Tuscany, and accompanied by a few pastoral instruments. To a sea-nymph, O nymph, who loves to float on the green wave, when Neptune sleeps beneath the moonlight hour, lulled by the music's melancholy power, O nymph, arise from out thy pearly cave. For Hesper beams amid the twilight shade, and soon shall Cynthia tremble over the tide, gleam on these cliffs that bound the ocean's pride, and lonely silence will the air pervade. Then let thy tender voice at distance swell, and steal along this solitary shore, sink on the breeze till dying heard no more, thou wakest the sudden magic of thy shell. While the long coast in echo sweet replies, thy soothing strains the pensive heart beguile, and bid the visions of thy future smile, O nymph, from out thy pearly cave, arise. Chorus, arise. Semi-chorus, arise. The last words being repeated by the surrounding group, the garland of flowers was thrown into the waves, and the chorus, sinking gradually into a chant, died away in silence. "'What can this mean, Madalina?' said Emily, awakened from this pleasing trance, into which the music had lulled her. "'This is the eye of a festival, Signora,' replied Madalina, and the peasants then amused themselves with all kinds of sports. "'But they talked of a sea-nymph,' said Emily. How come these good people to think of a sea-nymph? Oh, Signora! rejoined Madalina, mistaking the reason of Emily's surprise. Nobody believes in such things, but our old songs tell of them, and when we are at our sports we sometimes sing to them and throw garlands into the sea. Emily had been taught to venerate Florence as the seat of literature and of the fine arts, but— that its taste for classic story should descend to the peasants of the country, occasioned her both surprise and admiration. The Arcadian air of the girls next attracted her attention. Their dress was of a very short, full petticoat of light green, with a bodice of white silk. 
the sleeves loose and tied up at the shoulders with ribbons and bunches of flowers. Their hair, falling in ringlets on their necks, was also ornamented with flowers, and with a small straw hat, which, set rather backward and on one side of the head, gave an expression of gaiety and smartness to the whole figure. When the song had concluded, several of these girls approached Emily, and, inviting her to sit down among them, offered her and Madalena, whom they knew, grapes and figs. Emily accepted their courtesy, much pleased with the gentleness and grace of their manners, which appeared to be perfectly natural to them, and when Bertrand soon after approached, and was hastily drawing her away, a peasant, holding up a flask, invited him to drink, a temptation which Bertrand was seldom very valiant in resisting. "'Let the young lady join in the dance, my friend,' said the peasant, "'while we empty this flask. They are going to begin directly. Strike up, my lads, strike up your tambourines and merry flutes.' They sounded gaily, and the younger peasants formed themselves into a circle, which Emily would readily have joined, had her spirits been in unison with their mirth. Madalena, however, tripped it lightly, and Emily, as she looked on the happy group, lost the sense of her misfortunes in that of a benevolent pleasure. But the pensive melancholy of her mind returned, as she sat rather apart from the company, listening to the mellow music, which the breeze softened as it bore it away, and watching the mellow moon, stealing its tremulous light over the waves and on the woody summits of the cliffs that wound along these Tuscan shores. Meanwhile, Bertrand was so well pleased with his first flask that he very willingly commenced the attack on a second, and it was late before Emily, not without some apprehension, returned to the cottage. After this evening she frequently walked with Madalena, but was never unattended by Bertrand, and her mind became by degrees as tranquil as the circumstances of her situation would permit. The quiet in which she was suffered to live, encouraged her to hope that she was not sent hither with an evil design. And, had it not appeared probable that Valancourt was at this time an inhabitant of Udolpho, she would have wished to remain at the cottage till an opportunity should offer of returning to her native country. But, concerning Montoni's motive for sending her into Tuscany, she was more than ever perplexed, nor could she believe that any consideration for her safety had influenced him on this occasion. She had been some time at the cottage, before she recollected that, in the hurry of leaving Udolpho, she had forgotten the papers committed to her by her late aunt, relative to the Languedoc estates. But, though this remembrance occasioned her much uneasiness, she had some hope that, in the obscure place where they were deposited, they would escape the detection of Montoni. End of chapter 7, volume 3